Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I'm Martin van der Weer. Greetings to you from the Spectator, the 183-year-old steam-driven engine of enterprise. Um, and the minister has very effectively set out the parameters of this uh, section of the program, a debate about the skills agenda. We've got now five minutes less than we were going to have, so 70 minutes to discuss it. We've got four very interesting, distinguished panelists, and we can range across the whole spectrum of the skills agenda, from whether our school leavers are being imbued with the right life skills and technical skills to become economically active and useful and aim themselves towards enterprise, whether higher education is focused in the right way, despite the large numbers that the, the minister just quoted, one in seven undergraduates doing some form of business studies and so on, is that actually producing the raw material for enterprise that we need, and whether our senior managers actually have the skills to get the best out of the raw materials that they have in the people in their businesses and so on. So without further ado, I'm going to invite each of the panelists to give us five minutes from their own perspective, um, and I'll introduce them one by one. So I'm going to start with Simon Jewell from BAE Systems, director, the Director of Strategic Capability and Solutions at BAE Systems. And before he joined BAE, some years of experience as an Army officer in the Royal Artillery. Um, so Simon, give us a perspective from BAE's point of view, and I invite you also perhaps to comment a bit. We've heard a lot about the SME sector, but let's hear what, what you know, big business and big industry has to offer in this area. Excellent, Martin. Thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and given the fact we were told that we must stay to five minutes, I've scripted it to make sure I stay, so I will dive in if I may. So, In 1976, at the age of 16, I left school, and later the same year, age 17, I joined the armed forces as a private soldier. Nine years of military service later, having gained a commission in the army, I joined what is now BA Systems, and last year completed 25 years service with the company. I'm fortunate that throughout my career I've been afforded the opportunity for continuous learning. I'm a huge fan of the Open University as a result and continue to study with them to this day. I recognise I have a debt of gratitude to the company for the opportunities that it's created for me. I work in the world of technology where the pace of change continues to accelerate. To keep our own skills as a user up to date is hard enough. To possess the skills as a technology developer is even more demanding, requiring an open mind and a determination to continually acquire knowledge. The same is true for any company. BA Systems employs 107,000 employees globally, with around 38,000 people in the UK. Each year we invest about £50 million in the UK on education and skills in order to maintain our currency. We have over 1,100 apprentices and 500 graduates in training at any one time. We invest £73,000 in each apprentice, many of whom are aged 16 to 21, over the course of their three-year training programme leading to an NVQ Level 3 qualification. Many take further study, such as HNC and HND qualifications, and about 20 years go on to take degrees. 
Our graduates join our development framework and spend two years undertaking four rotational placements across the business. Those identified as exceptional and as future business leaders complete a demanding three- to five-year programme. However, we know we cannot afford to rest on our laurels. The company's productivity levels are 85% higher at uh, £78,000 per employee than the UK economic average of 42000 We rely, therefore, on a constant supply of talent and on developing them year on year. In 2009, we spent £4.1 billion with around 9,000 suppliers in the UK. Our supply chain, therefore, is similarly challenged to maintain their skills and competences to remain competitive. With their support, we export nearly £4.9 billion of equipment and services each year and contribute over £3 billion to the UK's GDP. It's calculated that for every 10 jobs created within the company, a further 12 are supported within the supply chain. In order to address our skills needs, we've launched a Skills 2020 programme that has the vision to be an agile and responsive to reskilling and multi-skilling in order to meet changing customer and business needs. It has three strategic priorities, workforce skills planning, employability and through career skills development. As part of our Skills 2020, our flagship programme is the Engineering Roadshow. By the end of 2010, 100,000 young people in school have seen the Travelling Theatre Show that aims to inspire pupils to focus on science, technology, engineering and maths by demonstrating the exciting possibilities in these fields. In 2010 alone, we reached over 300 schools nationwide. 64% of boys and 58% of girls say the roadshow has made them consider a career in engineering. We also work with approximately 30 universities in the UK and 100 worldwide on both our skills and research agenda. In so doing, we work closely with the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council and the Technology Strategy Board to align to national objectives. In closing, I must observe that we find ourselves satisfied with the quality of recruits, benefiting from 30 graduate applications for every place available and 10 applications for every apprenticeship place. Traditionally, we struggle to find enough systems and software engineers and niche skills such as nuclear engineers, though we recognise the downturn has eased the situation temporarily. Looking forward, we agree the prediction that the economy needs more and higher-level STEM skills and fear that the pace of delivery is not yet sufficient to meet the collective needs. Uh, I look forward to picking up the issues of supply and demand uh, during the Q&A, because clearly, in a sense, that conditions the way the company will work in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I think that does raise a lot of questions, but let's keep them for the Q&A, and let's hear from other <laughs> panellists first. So I'm going to turn next to Shirley Soskin, managing partner and founder of Silverhawk Partners, a search and consulting firm which provides senior talent to leading organizations on a flexible basis. Shirley is also a trustee of um, uh, a group called City Year London, which uh, puts volunteers into schools across London to help um, raise skills generally. So, Shirley, give us, give us your experience, particularly in relation to the kind of senior people you're putting in and their skills. Uh, thank you, Martin. Um, First of all, I think that uh, it was very interesting, David Willits's point about this being the decade of enterprise. We don't have a climate in which enterprise can flourish. I don't think we have a political climate in which enterprise can flourish. I don't think we have an organisational, cultural climate, nor an academic climate. 
Um, I'm looking forward to questions on the debate, and I know that's contentious sitting in this uh, academic powerhouse, but I'm not sure that entrepreneurism and enterprise is a subject that can be formally taught. I think you need to have energy, initiative, and courage to be enterprising. And I don't think that uh, the government is experienced enough in this area. I can't point to anybody on either side of the front benches who's done anything terribly enterprising. Uh, anecdotally, I was on the candidates' list to fight in the last general election, and I had to decide reluctantly not to do it, because you cannot combine running a business with fighting a parliamentary seat, let alone being a mother. And what does the government need? More people who run their own businesses, and I would suggest more women. But, you know, that's the, that's, it's a fact of life. Turning to the academic inst institutions, look at the famous college dropouts. Look at Bill Gates and Zuckerberg, they dropped out of Harvard. Does anybody drop out of Oxbridge to start a world-changing business? I'm not sure. I think higher education is good in general, but where are useful graduates? Is it fair to put young graduates through university to create three years of, of quite significant debt to give them a liberal arts degree which doesn't give them any skills to help either big business or small business? And also, when you get this plethora of graduates finishing with good upper second degrees from recognisable universities, companies are inundated with applications that all look the same. And it's very, very hard for organisations, large or small, to identify where good talent comes from. It's interesting that KPMG are going back to the old, almost old-fashioned sandwich course where they will take in their own graduates and put them through university. And yesterday, hotel group Travelodge announced 500 jobs for young managers to bypass university, come and do a training scheme, and at the age of 21, you can be running your own hotel. Sounds attractive. I'll give a shameless plug for City Year, which is the, the charity that I'm a trustee of. We put, we've just launched, on a very successful American model, we put uh, 60 volunteers aged between 18 and 24 who give up a year of their lives. They learn skills of teamwork, of working with head teachers, of organisation by going into school. They do it four days a week, and on the fifth day, they come back to base and they receive leadership training for life, what we call life after City Year. And we're dependent on our corporate partners to help them provide these skills. And we work with organisations as diverse as Barclays, National Grid, Burberry. It's not government funded, it's private enterprise that comes in and helps these kids to be employable at the end of the year. But I'm not just going to talk about young graduates. Enterprise comes, in my view, at any time during your career. And at Silverhawk, we specialise in people who want to be enterprising, having maybe spent 20 years in an organisation. It's for people at that transition who suddenly realise, I've done enough already. I've worked in a big corporation and now I want to do something different. It's flexible working, it's new talent, and it's untraditional working practices. It's not about, interestingly enough, people always say to me, oh, is it about mums returning or trying to work more flexibly around the demands of their children? I think women were trailblazers in this area, but now companies are understanding that in order to get a genuinely diverse workforce, old-fashioned working practices have to be eroded. And women who had no choice but to be enterprising now offer, uh, offer organisations a wide range of talent. Transferable skills, talents, attitude, energy, all working together, and clients have access to a new skill set. We're going to be all be working longer and longer, uh, and therefore in our 
second parts of our careers, it's, it's, it's interesting to use those skills to try and work in a different context. It's a challenge to be inventing jobs rather than finding them because there don't seem to be many around. So I think it's, it's really important for us to be challenging people to find jobs. Of course, organisations are still risk averse. They want people who've done the job before, but that's not enterprising. There is a genuine desire for adversity, for diversity, and I think we have to recognise individual strengths and encourage leadership from day one across a diverse range of the workforce. Young people work in completely different ways. Their lives are governed by social media, and they will approach the way they work in a completely different way to their current managers. And I think it's responsible and forward-looking companies need to understand that. We also need role models. Where are our enterprising role models? Linda Bennett of LK Bennett, Lloyd Dorfman of Travelex, James Dyson. Are they government advisors or university principals? I don't think so. <laughs> Great. Thank you very much, Shirley. So third, we turn to Professor Stephen Haberman, Director and Deputy Dean here at Cass Business School and an actuary by profession. He's going to give us a perspective um, on higher education, the role of universities and business schools. Um, and uh, Stephen, I think the question coming out of David Willett's um, opening speech is really, are all those undergraduates doing some kind of business studies, doing some sort of course with the word business or perhaps marketing in, the, in its title, are they actually learning something really useful? Well, let me try and respond to that. And, uh, um, can I, as representing the host institution, can I just welcome everyone here to CAS? Um, I, I will touch on that, but there's a couple of things I want to mention, if I may. One is about skills, and I think I need to respond to something that the minister said also about um, the way that universities and business schools were focusing too much on his characterization of academic research, which has been pushed by the way government allocates funding. I mean, can I say, if I start with that point, that... I don't actually recognize that as a characterization of any of the leading business schools in the UK. As Paul Judge is at the back and would know well, all of the leading business schools in the UK have clear strategies that go beyond just academic research. For us to survive and succeed, we must reach out to practitioners and policymakers. And so, to my knowledge, all of the leading business schools would in their strategy be focusing, yes, on academic research that is published in some abstruse US journals, but also research that is taken out and impacts directly on the business and policymaker community and on excellent teaching. Because actually our business model, um, and it's a pity the minister's not here to hear this, the business model is that teaching cross-subsidizes research. Teaching is absolutely vital to all leading business schools because it's the student fees that essentially pay my salary. One thing the minister didn't talk about, um, and the chairman asked me to, to touch on briefly, is the impact of cuts. Um, 2012 is going to see a sea change in higher education, in that undergraduates will be paying a market fee. They won't pay directly. The government will be paying on their behalf and recouping the funding later. But behind that has been a cut for all universities in a direct subsidy through a teaching grant and a research grant that they receive. And the talk about the £9,000 fee that you're hearing in the newspapers at the moment, that's because we need to balance the books. 
um, the money is being taken away with the left hand and the right hand requires us to charge a fee close to £9,000. What would the impact be? I mean, the impact would be quite serious, I think. It's the deterrent impact that worries me. Um, universities, like City, like Cass Business School, but like many, many universities around the country, have put a lot of effort into widening participation to bring in social groups who wouldn't otherwise have gone to university. And this touches very much on the enterprise agenda, I think. And that group will be deterred, I think, post-2012 from going into university with all the publicity that's being given to the debt problem. And if, like an academic, I'm not watching the time. Um, <laughs> I, 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 let me say that my credentials here are not just responsibility for running Cass Business School. Um, I have some minor credentials in that both my wife and daughter are entrepreneurs, and so I, I have been exposed to s some of what's going on in the discussion so far, and uh, hope that I'll be able to contribute later. But I want to talk about skills and um, present to you what school leavers look like to us. I mean, not all of our students are school leavers, perhaps only half. We run a lot of masters and MBA, PhD programs, but let's just look at school leavers. And um, I'll try and be provocative. They're good at social networking. They're good at talking nonstop. They think they can multitask, but actually they can't. What they can't do is focus on one thing. Multitasking to them is doing lots of things at once, not particularly well. They are good at creativity, but only within a box. Thinking beyond, if you like, outside the box is more difficult. And that, we feel, reflects on the way learning is managed within a school. And that means when students come into a university or a business school, they're actually not that well equipped to manage their own learning. They're very good at presentation, they're rather poor at writing, and they have to learn quite a lot that you think, perhaps you have in your head, school is delivering, but it isn't. So we have, are having to do remedial work. We don't anymore have to teach kids how to use technology or how to write PowerPoint presentations or in bring in the media or the web into a power. They can do that. They can do that with their eyes closed. But by the end of the third year, they have learnt to manage their learning. And that's about one year later than it used to be. Um, the business study students that you refer to. I mean, we, ha we have 300 business study students studying business studies degrees at CAS, undergraduates. About half of them, we've surveyed them, half of them want to set up their own business. They, they do take courses in how to develop a new business. We do provide them with some information and some, we bring in some outside speakers. So that's a way that universities react and interact with, with, with the business community. So half of them have that ambition. And the key thing for us is then to be able to help them beyond the degree to fulfill that ambition. And one, I will respond to Shirley, um, one of our star alumni, he didn't drop out, Peter Cullum, um, made his millions in the insurance industry and he's given us ten, a 10 million pound fund, for example, for investing in new enterprise ideas that come from our own alumni. And he's our Bill Gates. I'll stop there. Thank you very much indeed. So our fourth panelist is Martin Bright, who is both 
involved in this subject matter as the founder of New Deal of the Mind, a coalition of artists, entrepreneurs, etc., which works to boost employment in the creative sector during the recession. But he's also a pungent commentator, journalist for the Jewish Chronicle, previously for the New Statesman, a blogger for the Spectator. Hooray. So give us your perspective on everything you've heard so far, Martin. Hey, thank you very much. Um, yeah, as you can see, I'm rather promiscuous. Um, and uh, I do all sorts of things, have all sorts of hats. Um, and as part of what I do, I end up uh, going to party conferences. And in the spirit of promiscuity, I end up going to all the party conferences. Um, and I wanted to tell you about a... Uh, and I will tell you a few anecdotes, because that's what journalists do. But I wanted to tell you about uh, Chris Grayling, the employment uh, minister at the last Conservative Party conference. <coughs> and um, Chris Gailing was sitting in a kind of rather obscure fringe meeting um, uh, talking about uh, work creation, talking about uh, the single work programme that uh, the government uh, has just announced. Um, and he was asked by uh, the CEO of one of these huge service companies that's just managed to snaffle up all the large contracts uh, for the work programme. Well, Chris, uh, it's all very well you talking about um, uh, creating work, but what about the parts of the country where there is no work? What about the parts of the country where uh, there are no big employers uh, and where we will find it difficult to make money out of putting people back to work? And Chris Grayling said, hmm, yes, uh, yeah, that's a bit difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, there are places like Hull and Burnley and uh, parts of the northeast where there just is no, there is no work. There are no jobs. There is no job supply. And he said, well, I guess people are just going to have to set up their own businesses uh, in a rather kind of offhand, kind of casual way. <laughs> and uh, he's, of course, completely right and completely wrong at the same time. Um, People do need to set up their own businesses. This is, I think, recognised now as one of the ways that uh, we will see ourselves out of these difficult times. Uh, but I don't think the government can afford to be as casual as that. You can't just do it. Um, I do think it's a shame that uh, the minister couldn't stay. I think that's part of the problem, uh, you know, that people do need to listen. Uh, uh, I was very impressed by... Um, Shirley's pungent um, critique, I think we do have a problem from the top to the bottom. Uh, the top in terms of politics, the bottom in terms of uh, the young people out there. Uh, we deal with young people. Um, we try and find them jobs in the creative industries. Uh, and we also try and help them set up their own businesses. Um, the problem is that they're not really equipped to do so. Um, turn to page 20 of your uh, programme here, you will, you will see um, uh, a piece that I've written, ignore the rather strange photograph, um, about this problem. And there's a young man called Sam who works for one of our projects uh, who uh, helped set up a little enterprise. Uh, it was based at the British Council uh, it, and uh, what he and four other young unemployed or formerly unemployed people do is uh, they work on UK propaganda films from the 1930s and 40s. They've set up their own little company called Time Image, uh, which uh, is helping digitise these films. Uh, there's about 13, 14 up there at the moment. There are 160 still to be uh, digitised, and they have set up their own business. They've now got investment from Google. They've got some investment from the British Council. Uh, and 
they are about to launch the, the business uh, formally. Now, what Sam says, uh, what Sam said in a letter to me recently, which I've, uh, I've reprinted here, um, is that, well, I'll read it to you. Entrepreneurship is not something that's taught in schools. From a very early age, we're no longer educated but taught to pass exams. Uh, everything is given to us on a plate. And what does this mean for young people leaving university or school today? What it means is there's no taking the initiative, no using common sense, no making your own opportunities. And he's saying that about himself and his peers. Um, now, I think this is a serious issue. Uh, can you do it from scratch? I mean, we hope so at New Deal in the Mind. Can you actually get people off the dole and setting up their own businesses? Uh, we think we've done it with Time Image. Uh, we have another company called unsignedbandreview.com where a young woman from the Dole, uh, on the Dole has set up her own uh, music scouting company with three other people uh, that, uh, that we fund. Um, uh, but I wanted to sound a warning, really. Uh, I mean, the minister referred to it himself. Um, this is very difficult. It's a kind of myth that entrepreneurs um, start from scratch, largely. It's a myth that there are hundreds of, of Richard Bransons out there. Um, you know, most people do it from trust funds and inheritances. Rod Aldridge uh, of Capita, um, uh, the research that he did into this, where he was hoping to prove how young people can do it from scratch, showed that the vast majority of people that set up their own businesses do it with parental money. Um, so how do we get around this? Um, the young people that we've spoken to uh, in a report that we published called, uh, uh, and this is the spirit that uh, Shirley was, was talking about, it's a report entitled Make a Job, Don't Take a Job. Um, people do want to set up their own businesses. Uh, they're not asking for much. They want a little bit of startup money, a little bit of advice, uh, and a little bit of space to do what they do, generally speaking. Um, how do we help them? Well, I think there's a moral obligation out there for those of us uh, who uh, have uh, found a degree of kind of success within this, this difficult life of ours to, to help them. Uh, I think there is a moral obligation on the part of government, but I understand that there is not much money out there. Um, but I also think there's a moral obligation on the part of big companies, and there's particularly a moral obligation on the part of banks. So uh, I would like to use this opportunity to... Uh, urge people to uh, help us do this. There, uh, we have a model. Um, there are other models out there. It is possible to, to do it, but people do need to um, step up to the plate. Thank you. Splendid. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so, I mean, it seems to me we've had some discussion of two different skill sets there. The, the skills required to start your own business, to run a business successfully, or to manage an existing business or part of an existing business, perhaps even a very big business, uh, to do all that well, skills to do with, with finance, communication, strategy, and all of that. And then separately, the kind of skills learned in apprenticeships, technical engineering, scientific skills, and so on. Uh, we can talk about both of those areas. I think there are primary focuses on the first set, but I'm now going to open to questions, uh, and we can start over here. It's Morris Mendoza. Uh, the company is Mendoza Media. Um, the question really is, uh, there's a very um, un-British uh, topic in the Harvard Business Review recently about what can be learned from failure. Um, and in America, they like to uh, claim 
that uh, people are quite comfortable with failing and that they then use that experience to move on to new successes. I, I'm slightly sceptical of that because I've come across a few people who openly uh, talk about their own failures. But, uh, but I think it is something entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs, might have to face and may not be ready for, is uh, they go down a particular path and then reach some kind of roadblock and unexpected um, crisis. Um, how can they be prepared for that and then sort of move on to build on that to create something successful? Shirley, do you have a view on that? I think it's a very interesting point. I think the, the problem with our generation is that we were brought up in a booming economy, albeit when I ran Clarion, which was a public relations agency, I had to drive it through two recessions. But it was nothing like what people are facing today. And I think we just have to be much more flexible about being able to recognise failure and giving people the confidence to pick themselves up and move on. Uh, I just wanted to pick up one thing that Martin said, which I think needs amplifying, which is the moral obligation of the banks. The banks have squeezed the life out of small businesses. I, who ran a successful business for 15 years, sold it to WPP um, and started again. And when things started to get rough in the recruitment market, as they did two years ago, the banks very nearly put us out of business. So having a track record meant absolutely nothing. So goodness knows what they say to young people who come in and want, want a loan. And I think it, it is incumbent on the banks to help people without parental money. To, to have loans on, on some sort of terms that they can actually turn around and succeed and fail. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, uh, I certainly agree with the question that you always hear this, that, that the US has this different attitude and it's more forgiving and tolerant. Um, we, we employ about 50,000 people in the US and as I said about 37,000 in the UK. I can't detect a difference, to be honest, between those two groups as to, as to their, their tolerance. What I do think, though, is the more important feature is actually the resilience element that, that irrespective it's, it's how do you pick yourself up and carry on the next day rather than necessarily what others think so I think resilience is the key Can I just say I mean you know I hold up my hand I am a failed entrepreneur um, uh, in the 80s when I left university there was a thing called the enterprise allowance scheme um, which uh, the government is reintroducing as the new enterprise allowance scheme new in the sense that it's not funded like the old one was <laughs> um, so I've I'm very, very sceptical about whether it's going to work. Um, but the, um, I set myself as a, up as a printer in, in Basildon, in Essex. Absolutely catastrophic. I mean, really, really stupid thing to do, really. Um, except that I learned a lot from it. I mean, except that, I mean, uh, it, was, it was good to know that I would never, I should never be a printer. It was good to know that I was a rubbish salesman uh, and that uh, certainly within that business, I didn't really have the, the resilience that was needed. I then... Um, went back on the enterprise allowance scheme because actually you could scam it if you move from if you so if you move local education authority they didn't catch up with you so you could go on it again um, so I then set myself up as a journalist and and that was you know that was that was how it worked but I but I do think um, that it's very difficult I mean the sort of young people that we're working with to turn around to people who often think of themselves ha as already having failed <laughs> by being by being unemployed, it's quite difficult to say, well, actually, you know, welcome to the world of entrepreneurship, but uh, be prepared to fail all over again. I think it's, I think it's really hard. Um, a very interesting point about the banks. Don't get me going on <laughs> banks. Uh, and really, you wouldn't go to a bank if you wanted to start a new business and you're a young person, but you might go to something like the Prince's Trust, for example. So I think it's worth mentioning bodies like that who do put up money 
uh, for young entrepreneurs. Perhaps there's somebody here with some experience. Julia, you wanted to say something? Yes, I just wanted to bring the conversation back to the skills agenda bit of this. And in fact, Martin Bright's Skills Charity New Deal of the Mind and Editorial Intelligence are launching a social enterprise called Talent to Work, which is designed to address this gap that, frankly, higher education, business schools, apprenticeships, internships do not provide, which is the practical, if you like, cognitive skills in which to go into the workplace. So I'm very interested to know what the panel think tomorrow's worker needs, regardless, actually, of whether they are enterprising themselves or whether they're going to go into any kind of enterprise. I disagree with, with Julia's description of what uh, universities and business schools are, are doing with, with students. I mean, I think we are equipping them with the skills that they need to go into, to go into work. If we didn't, our students wouldn't be in work. So I think the, the proof of the pudding is there from all of the, the leading universities and school, skill, uh, schools. Um, I, I think what, what we need is a mixture of the, the generic skills, the ability, uh, Martin referred to this, the ability to listen, um, the ability to focus, um, negotiate, influence, general skills like that combined with specialist skills the ability to have gone into something in some depth, whether it's ancient history or how to do digital marketing. I don't think it matters too much. But it's the combination of those, those two. Uh, I'm going to go to Sarah Churchwell next, but let me just ask Simon something. That, that phrase, the proof of the pudding, um, made, makes me think of this. Um, John Rose of Rolls-Royce gave a lecture 18 months or so ago talking about the skills skills issues, and I'm paraphrasing wildly here, but he basically said that at that great Rolls-Royce factory in Derby, they can bring uh, the people they recruit up to the skills level that they need over a period of time, but if they need high skills, uh, both technical and management skills in a hurry, they're more likely to put the new factory in Singapore or Germany or other places. Now, is, is that a real experience for BAE? You, you presented some rather impressive-sounding statistics, I know, but, but do you have to face the issue that actually the better skills are not found in this country, they're somewhere else? Uh, I think, I, no, I don't think we think that. Uh, I mean, clearly we recognize that there is a global skills pool and we, we, we need to be better at actually accessing that, so we'll recognize that. But I think what, what you heard from Rolls-Royce there was a, a slightly different perspective. Uh, the nature of our market is, is that it's based around home markets. And in the UK, it's in the UK. In the US, it's US. Saudi Arabia, it's Saudi, uh, as an example. So we are part of the ecosystem in the UK, and our skills mix, therefore, predominantly comes from here. And, and, and you know, I think that what's important is that we get the right balance of that supply and demand in each of those home markets but recognising there is a global talent pool that then moves around as well, and they both link together. But not a marked deficit in... No, I, I think there is, there, there is a risk that we will not have enough engineering skills for the future if the economy grows to the extent that, that we all wish and the government wish it to grow. So that would create a problem. And you know, relative to India, China, we're not producing sufficient numbers. But there is a difference between quality and volume, 
and, and you know, what, what people have been reflecting here is that need that people need that, that X factor in, in whatever they do that will distinguish them from everyone else. And I think you know, if there is a discriminator for the UK, it's always been that ability to find that X factor. And, and I, I hope that in a sense we focus on that rather than going for the volumetric measure of turning out more and more people, but perhaps with less and less skills. Very good. Sarah. I teach uh, liberal arts uh, at a, a university, and I write about it as well. And I'm here in part because I'm a little bit frustrated by the presumption that enterprise and liberal arts don't have anything to say to each other. Um, so I, I want to underscore, particularly what Martin and Stephen have been saying, I think that we are giving students those skills, although I would slightly differ with Stephen in that, certainly from our point of view, I would take responsibility and say that we're not doing a good enough job at communicating to our students what those skills are, what those cognitive practical skills are that Julia was talking about. And that is certainly something that we need to learn to do better but also that that I, I would like to differ with what with what Shirley said and to challenge it a little bit the presumption which is certainly widely shared um, that liberal arts degrees don't give the skills uh, that people need um, that actually we don't know where creative ideas are going to come from but even the people in this room already this morning we've heard from people who are trying to connect uh, certainly with what Martin is doing um, I was speaking to Stephen this morning before we started who said that his uh, his business model comes from Moby Dick um, I absolutely love that. Now, I have to point. I did have to point out to him that you know uh, that that several people go mad and everybody dies. So um, it, you know it, it may be slightly problematic. But the kinds of things that Mark is saying as well. Um, the Harvard Business Review had a it was just a blog, but had a, a piece last week about um, innovative thinking coming from the humanities. I think part of the problem is is our presumptions that these things don't actually speak to each other, and that innovative and creative thinking, by definition, comes from unexpected places. That's what makes it innovative and creative. And I would say to anybody who wanted to, get, to, to learn business skills from an, a totally academic source, go read a good novel. I think it's absolutely right. But the problem is that many of our courses don't give the intellectual rigor that is needed. They don't even require the students to turn up to lectures. And those are basic skills that those students are going to need. We're not doing them a service in that way. So that, I don't think it's the liberal arts, I think it's the discipline. Great comment from Martin, and we'll take another comment at the back, the gentleman at the back. Another confession, I mean, I, am, you know, I have an English degree and, uh, and, uh, and a history degree, so you know, I have you know, steeped in the liberal, liberal arts. Um, uh, I don't know whether that contributed to my, the failure of my printing business, but um, to respond slightly to, to, to um, what Julia's saying, um, I didn't feel I could advertise two of, uh, of my initiatives, so thank you for advertising the Talent to Work uh, initiative that we're working on together. I think uh, part of the problem is that young people don't know what skills they have. Uh, so that's partly to, to, to address what you're saying, that, that people coming into the world of work don't realise that they are better equipped than they might think they are. Uh, and so part of the reason that Julia and I want to set up this sort of junior networking system for, for young people is to teach them how to be more confident about using, using what they have. I mean, just in very practical terms, um, that can include the kind of social media and web-based skills that they have almost as, uh, without thinking about it. Um, I've, I've lost count of the number of times that the young people that are working on our schemes uh, have helped just in a completely casual basis with the kind of uh, idiotic um, problems that the middle-aged people uh, who are their bosses get into. So I think that's, you know, that's really important. 
one of the skills that people are, I mean, I'm not surprised the minister said, you know, uh, 13 and 14 year olds have ambitions to set up businesses. And we all know people who work in law firms and companies who suddenly get a surge to set up business when they're in their 40s. There are certain points in people's lives when they absolutely want to assert their independence. Uh, you shouldn't mistake that for an entrepreneurial ta talent, because of course a great majority of them will go on to fail. Um, but this issue of emotional intelligence in business seems to me to be very, very um, important. And I think if you look at the Financial Times and you look at everything from the kind of Martin Luke's uh, description of somebody who appears to have no uh, self-awareness uh, through to the much more serious articles and a lot of the stuff coming out of the Harvard Business Review about the psychology and the emotional intelligence of coping with running a business. Now, it seems to me that a lot of the kids that are coming out of school and out of colleges have had no experiences to reinforce their, their emotional intelligence, their sense of self-worth. They've not been involved in doing things. Um, I'll try and explain this a bit more. Um, I'll try and keep it brief. None of them know how to do an auction face. An auction, I, my grandfather taught me what the auction face was. When I was a kid, I used to go to the mart with him, and he would sell things. And some of the things he was, he was selling, like pigs, were my pigs. I mean, I didn't own them, but I sort of fed them, and they were my pigs. But I had to keep my auction face on. If we got a low price, I mustn't look dreadfully disappointed. And if we got a high price and had completely screwed the other side, I wasn't allowed to jump and give away the fact. And just that lack of ability to deal with business up and down. And the ones I find coming out of college at the moment, I mean, they're getting to the age of 22 and 23, and there's vast areas of life experience they've not had, not just okay, getting out okay. of bed. You know. Thank you, thank you. Don't forget to tell us who you are before you speak. Over here. Thank you very much. I'm Tony Gillen I'm from the Institute of Ideas, and we employ 10 people, and we're very proud of that. Um, now, I wanted to come back to the international comparisons. Uh, I run a project uh, called Debating Matters, where we work with 16 to 18-year-olds in 200 schools in the UK and 100 schools in India. What's really striking is the hunger, passion, and determination, as well as the fact that they read a lot, in India, which is unmatched by uh, their counterparts in the UK. Bright, motivated British students who don't have a hunger and don't read very much. So I, I wanted to come to just uh, Martin's uh, uh, gentleman, Sam, who said in the quote, everything was handed to us on a plate. And uh, your point about intellectual rigor. If we really want people who are passionate and hungry, determined to do new things and innovate, do we not need to stop putting everything on the plate? Do we not need to stop patronizing them and telling them how good they are and well done because you can do a bit of social media and la di da di da and actually start challenging them in a much more fundamental and rigorous way? Thank you. And one more comment from the back there, then we'll come back to the panel. Yeah, just from the perspective of small businesses and the skills that small businesses need, I think there was discussion there regarding the fact that that they, the, the, the skills that small businesses need are in the areas of, of employability skills. They need those softer skills, determination to succeed, willingness to learn, and that is set far above just, you know, even just getting a degree. A small business wants to, you know, upskill, they want to train, but they want to not have to pick up the, the failure in the education system. And the greatest problem was setting a target of 50% of young people going into higher education. So from our perspective, we see that not as a challenge, but an opportunity that with this you know, likelihood that there will be a lower demand for places of higher education, you start to move on to what small businesses need, which is like you know, genuine apprenticeships. 
um, and vocational education, um, and they will then pick up the slack and then undertake the, the, the job of training in the skills that small businesses need. Okay, let's, let's come back to the panel for some comments. So are we, are we sort of, in this discussion, beginning to overemphasize these soft skills, emotional, cognitive skills and so on, uh, as opposed to the hard skills, i.e. scholarly and technical learning? Simon. Well, you, you need both, clearly. It's, uh, and I, I think certainly through my career, I've seen phases where we've gone you know, hugely on soft issues and then we've gone back and done sort of project management training and, and the like. You, need, you do need both. And I, I, I think that uh, you know, generally is, is the emotional, the EQ side underplayed, probably at the junior level, but then at the senior level, people kick it in and do a lot. Um, maybe we should do it earlier. Uh, I, I think on the on the sort of the passion and hunger side of things, and, and do we is the safety net too big? I, I, personally, I'd agree with that. I actually, you know, with my own children, they will tell you. You know, it's, I, I think that people need to have a passion and a hunger, uh, and and on the, in a sense, whether you're an individual or whether you're a business, the key is that you have to differentiate yourself, and, and you know, Porter's value chain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Differentiation is key. And I think too many people in the UK don't realise what their own differentiation is or seek to achieve it, and that's where we fail. I think we've slightly blurred the edges of definition here because we're talking about self-employment, people who run their own business, but actually what we're talking about is enterprise. And what we need to do is give people the skills and culture for enterprise, whether they work in a large organisation, whether they run their own business, or whether they're freelance. Um, so I think that it is, it is a matter of a definition. I think the whole, the whole question of experience, apprenticeships or internships, is vital. I think it's very interesting. Harvard Business School runs an entrepreneur's course. And, in, and, and when I was, wanted to study, it was the only business school that did offer an entrepreneur's course some years ago. I don't know whether the British business schools now do it. But at Harvard, you have to have run your own business for a minimum of five years before you can get onto the course. And I, it meant that when we all accumulated there, we had a collective uh, value system that we could share. And I think one of the problems is that most of the, experience, most of the skills you need in business, you learn by experience. And that's why it's so important to develop this whole internship and, and uh, apprentice debate. Uh, I'm Rachel Stringer. I'm a self-employed events producer and concert programmer. Sorry about the feedback. Um, I just wondered, I wanted to ask the panel, regardless of kind of all the skills development that you're talking about, with uh, massive multinational corporations doing things like Amazon, WH Smith, um, kind of taking away those opportunities for small business on the high street, is there something now that's stopping young people setting up businesses um, that you can get cheaper on the internet or you can get, you know, from massive chains in the high street? Thanks. Go to the back there. One, one particular thing struck me about the, about, the, uh, about, about the debate, and that is um, particularly with the, uh, what Stephen said about business school and, and equipping uh, students with skills, but how fantastically unentrepreneurial you were being about uh, what, what in, in effect, what you got to work with, with uh, young, young students or young people coming out and what skills they have and looking at, okay, what those skills are and what you can do with them. So I just wanted to kind of sort of second what Martin was saying about the fact that, the, you know, identifying what, what particular talents that young, that people who are age, say, 18 to 24 have that, that some of us don't have and how you can, well, to, to use terrible word, exploit or take advantage of those skills. So just to, um, you know, in my experience of, of working with people 
in that, in, in that age group. Um, a, finding out their particular perspective on things, uh, the fact that they have a different uh, view and, and, and are much more skilled at using technology, social networks, and how that can be of huge value. And I've found it massively, massively valuable. And actually, I think there's quite an interesting business there. Thank you very much. Lady here, had your hand up. Jackie Salon of JSA London. The CBI published on their website um, a document about employability um, and they list six or seven competencies or skills which they maintain are the, the, the chief um, competencies for employability, which include things like self-management, team working, problem solving, communication literacy, application of numeracy, business and customer awareness. Um, I have conducted research uh, and my research has demonstrated that there's a clear link between building networks and career success. And uh, I wanted to ask the panel uh, what their views were, both on the skills list published by the CBI uh, and my additional uh, suggestion that building networks um, is, is essential for, for uh, employability and for career success. So if you'd like to think about that one, mm -hmm. Martin. Uh, Stephen, you're accused of being unentrepreneurial un un here. Well, I, I, okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> um, I mean, I was commenting on the skills that the kids have when they arrive at university or business school. And I would separate the individual from the past experience. I mean, one, this isn't a blame game. We're not blaming the students for what's happened to them at school, which I... I do believe is too highly structured. And if I can give a brief anecdote, um, feedback is a very important thing at university. We're asking students all the time about the quality of the feedback they get on their work. And sometimes in a group of students they will say to us, you haven't given us any feedback. And it turns out what we've done is we've given them feedback without saying to them, I'm now going to give you feedback. <laughs> and this I think is uh, Sarah's point that we need to learn that we need to actually label everything as feedback in the initial the first year in order for them to understand what the, the later question is but I, I think there was there, I want to comment as well on just the teaching environment the teaching environment is a very rich one uh, they, they do business games they do simulations they do work in groups they learn how to work in groups they also learn how to assess the performance of others in their groups. And they're assessed on their ability to assess the performance of others in their groups. And those are important skills going forward. This isn't something dry in terms of a, a group of people just sitting in a room like this and absorbing. It's learning as well as being taught. And the learning comes from the others around you. And there's a comment about international. And the student groups are very international these days. Our undergraduates will come from about a hundred countries and that, that's a challenge for the UK student but we would deliberately design a working group to pitch a UK student with some students from India and China and they can, they've got strengths that they can bring to the group. Okay, uh, Simon, quick comment on that, the question about are massively big companies making it too difficult for small companies to find niches? I think the, the uh, I mean, it was, uh, very good question. I, I, if we just look at that, you mentioned Amazon and, and the high street. 
around about 2002, Amazon lost over a billion dollars uh, before it became successful and all of us started shopping on it. And it was, it was just about itself. It had big warehouses, it, all its systems. It changed at that point to adopt the affiliates model. And as you know, if you buy from Amazon now, you actually get it supplied from a, a range of companies. And, and therefore, I, my point, I suppose, is that we have to adapt and change. And, and though, although it will have an impact on the high street, it, it, it isn't necessarily the death of shopping. It's just simply done differently. And, and clearly, I think the businesses need to react. The challenge I completely accept, and there is no simple answer, is how do you do that and how do you communicate? I mentioned that we have 9,000 suppliers in the UK. Divide that up by the number of days. How on earth do you deal with talking to the people you work with, let alone the ones you don't? So I accept that problem. Okay, and on the networks question? I think it's a very important question, but let's not, um, let's not, not get too hung up on... Um, on well, let's, no, sorry, let me put it a different way. Networks are not neutral. Okay, the networks are not good in themselves. Good networks are good. And half the work that we end up doing is with disentangling the rubbish networks that young people have, have managed to kind of uh, entangle themselves in. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the network that I ended up with as a young person from going to a you know, good university was a ready-made, totally brilliant network because it, that, that is the nature of how those universities work. Um, the network that the young woman who's working for us on uh, a project on the history of dubstep music in Britain uh, has built up for herself on the Kilburn housing estate that she was living in is absolutely terrible. And also, the, the way that you do this, so we all probably work with Facebook, possibly work with Facebook, with LinkedIn, with or Twitter, all these kinds of things, um, but it does matter the way you use it because you can be over casual. So the young woman from the Kilburn housing estate that has this terrible network that we're trying to disentangle, um, when she was absent from uh, work for a week, uh, because she'd just been kind of bumming around, contacted me by mobile on Facebook and said, uh, sorry, I don't want you to think I'm taking the piss. Now, that's a really bad use of a network with your boss. So I think networks in themselves are not a good thing. We just need to make sure that we teach people to use them well. Okay. Scott Fulton at Smithfield. I thought I'd break with tradition and actually ask the panel a question. Um, do they feel that the word enterprise and the government's own agenda fits into social policy or economic policy? By which I mean, are we talking about social engineering and getting people off the dole? Or are we talking about trying to rebuild our economy after the last two years? And if I may, could I get the chairman started on banks as well? Um, because if we're here in blaming the banks, why are we not blaming HMRC for creating one of the most difficult tax codes uh, to understand for anybody in this room? And I suspect one of the things that we all really need to understand in terms of a... I will get to a question, um, which is that do we feel that the key skill here for a small uh, business is to understand the tax code and to understand accounting. Thank you. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm going to do, we're going to finish on time at quarter two, so we've still got quarter an hour, but I'm going to ask each of the panelists to give a final comment and particularly to tell us what they think, either the government or the education system or business organizations, it might be the CBI, the Federation of Small Businesses, and so on, lobby groups and so on, what they should be doing that they're not doing now to advance the skills agenda. So I think some of that can come into that summing up, if that's okay with you. Now, we were going 
To you, madam. Yeah. Hi, my name's Claire Cater from Bell Pottinger. Um, a question for the panel. There's been a lot of focus on university education. I feel quite passionately about secondary education because that's where a lot of the habits are formed when kids are 12 plus. And I think actually we could do a lot to develop the skills of the teachers and their enterprising culture and the leadership in secondary education in particular. Um, I see a great lacking of it. My son, um, our fifth child, has gone to a state school, fantastic state school, with a great farm. But even with the help of Prince Charles and Elizabeth Buchanan, we can't get the teachers to budge on setting the farm up properly as a commercial enterprise. And it's the 14-year-old kids that have brought the shop into profit. Um, when they took it over, um, almost hostile, in a hostile environment, and, and were led to do it. But on a serious level, what do the panel think about what we could do to really improve? And actually, some of these skills don't exist amongst teachers either. Go on, sir. My question uh, follows on organically from, from the previous one. I, I'm worried that the panel haven't addressed a um, whole area of vocational education, you know, the colleges. Governments in, in the past have um, attempted to put vocational qualifications on a sort of parity with A-levels. Um, we've seen the diploma. Um, and yet what happens is that the A-level, AS-level, university education, people are still being churned out of this sausage machine. What do the panel think is the role of vocational education in creating an enterprise culture, and how could universities... Thank uh, you. Kate Dickens, The Latitude Project. I'd like to ask the panel what their thoughts are on developing co-coaching and mentoring skills in people from all ages, from school upwards. Um, the idea is that they could get each other to think really well about things, and it could also tie in with self-leadership and at the moment, I feel that people aren't encouraged to think for themselves, which can really hold back in entrepreneurship. Ian Bass, the Community Development Finance Association. Uh, my question is related to uh, the third sector and uh, how that can assist in individuals that may not have had a degree from a business school or have an inheritance. That seems to be a way that a lot of people have set up a business. Uh, a lot of people are being turned away from the banks at the moment, and I represent a group of lenders, community development finance institutions like Prince's Trust, like you mentioned, that lend to individuals that haven't got a track record, that may not have the business skills um, that they got from, uh, from a degree. Um, and I was just wondering what the panel think about the role of the third sector and advisory organizations such as Business Link for people that may not have had the, the money from an inheritance or, or, or a business degree. Okay, thank you. So there's a lot there. Um, secondary education, vocational education, coaching and mentoring, all those aspects. The state, as it imposes on all this, what the tax man does, as well as what the banks do, what the government does or doesn't do. So I'm going to ask each of the panelists in two minutes to, to sum up what they think is missing. What are the absolutely key things that ought to be happening that aren't happening across the whole uh, spectrum, the public, private, and third sectors. And I'm just going to go along from that end to that end. So start with Shirley. Uh, well, I think government should be doing less. I mean, I think the problem with the tax codes is the tip of the iceberg. It's the taxation system that is at fault. And it's also the incredible complication around employing people. Um, so flexibility of employment is, is key. 
Uh, it's key for organisations to use talent differently, whether young, middle or at the, at the senior end of their career, allowing people to work in the way in which makes them the most enterprising. Um, skills and vocation, I think there is a role for vocational education. I just don't think we've got another hour to discuss it. We haven't really touched on internships or apprenticeships in any detail, and I think we've all got views on that, but again, uh, hopefully that will be maybe covered later in the day. Um, but I think really in terms of creating a climate to encourage enterprise, we need to look at the government with less interference, um, in, in especially in, in helping small businesses to, to flourish. The, the question was raised about uh, whether it's economic or social policy, and I, I, I don't claim to have any expertise in, in, uh, in that area. But, but what I would believe, because I believe in systems, that, that actually it's inevitable that both influence each other and, and you have to take them into account. We, we spoke about the fact that, in a sense, people have to have an appetite, a hunger, and a need. Uh, and, and often you don't get change until a need is seen as extreme. Uh, and I think we've reached that point in the economy, and therefore I hope we do get the change. To get that change, it was mentioned about uh, coaching and, and, and mentoring and the roles that that play. Uh, and, and certainly I would just look back at my own career and recognize that a series of individuals who either knew they were mentoring me or didn't know they were mentoring me uh, have helped hugely. And, and you know, again, I touch in areas that I don't have direct expertise, but whether that's about the family or whether it's about work, that role, I think, is so important and, and can only, therefore, be encouraged. Um, and it then comes back to that as a nation, we are an ecosystem, and we are an ecosystem in the wider uh, trading world within Europe and, and then beyond that. And I don't think we should be ashamed of that fact, and I think we should recognize it more and, and not have a, a capitalist-based society and not have a socialist-based society, but just recognize that actually it's the blend of the two that actually would allow the economy to grow. Okay. Yes, I mean, on the issue of uh, secondary education, I think one of, one of the issues we have here, and it's a fundamental issue, is that people who go into teaching, gross generalization here, but people who go into teaching are generally risk-averse. And that's why they go into teaching with, uh, with the nice, secure jobs that come with it. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, not everybody can be an entrepreneur. And uh, in terms of teaching, I think often that kind of security uh, helps with, uh, with, 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 with the way people are taught. Um, but we do need to find a way of getting entre entrepreneurial um, skills into school. And I think it will probably have to come from outside by, by people going into the schools. Um, I just wanted to say that in, 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 in summary... Um, you know, I, I used to be the political editor of the New Statesman. I, you know, I'm an old-fashioned socialist in many ways. Um, I think governments can and should intervene. Uh, and in bad times, governments of all shades do intervene. The Enterprise Allowance Scheme, the great Thatcherite uh, flagship, was a massive state intervention in the economy. It was a huge work creation scheme. But what I do feel is that if you're going to do work creation, you need to decide what your priorities are. And my feeling is, is that the vast amounts of money that are still being put into work creation and will put into work creation, mainly by uh, putting the money into the hands of massive service companies, um, the priority needs to be to get people the experience of working in uh, enterprises, working in small businesses. That's where the priority needs to, needs to be if we're going to do work creation at all. I'll touch briefly on... Um teaching <clears throat> and uh, entrepreneurialism. Um, I know from the experience of my wife, who's judged a number of business competitions in schools, that 
the understanding of teachers is very patchy regarding enterprise. And here's an, an anecdote. There was one where the winner of the, the competition had a fantastic idea, but the intellectual property had been disclosed by the teacher. Didn't understand that by making the idea public, she'd undermine the opportunity to get a patent. Now, perhaps you don't all understand that, and I only understood it from having my wife shout at me several times about this. Um, but that was actually scuppered, what was a good idea. And that was only because the teacher didn't understand. Um, speaking as someone who runs a small business, 55 million turnover and 350 employees, what I would love is less government interference in higher education. I mean, the government is going to give universities and business schools less money, but actually it's going to increase the amount of regulation. Personally, I don't need the government to tell me the importance of research excellence and teaching excellence. I know what the importance of that is, and certainly my students will scream at me regarding the importance of teaching excellence. So we're over-regulated. Less would be more. Um, I support the comments about coaching and mentoring. I think that's very, very important, and that's something that we try to encourage in bringing back, for example, alumni to help our students um, who want to start up businesses. And I know also, if I may just finally, the importance of the advisory sector, again through those members of my family who are entrepreneurs, how important Business Link has been and from, from my wife's networks. But also if I can put a plug in for the British Library Intellectual Property Centre, which is a fantastic and free resource that's underused. Great. Well, I hope we have tried to address all of your questions. It seems to me we've missed out one vital topic, which was this, this week's biggest social evil, the unpaid work experience placement, which the Deputy Prime Minister was attacking in my column, which you might read later today. In The Spectator, I've recommended the complete abolition of unpaid work experience placements since they involve no work and no experience, mostly. <laughs> um, but with that thought, I shall hand back to Julia, and thank you very much to our panellists. Thank you. Thank you.